It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the latest edition of the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. And it's been a frenetic couple of weeks before we get to our interview with a fantastic patriot, former EOD tech. He dismantled bombs and uh, other bomb-related activity and ran with special operations forces such as SEALs and Delta before he retired to do other things, which are fascinating. But I've got a few uh, personal things to air out before we get on with the podcast at hand. The Garden. The Garden over here is uh, producing. I'm running out of things to do with, you know, chard and kale. Uh, I I'm running out of recipes that taste good, so I'm wondering if you could uh, send me your favorites uh, over to Victoria at victoriataft.com. And I'm wondering why I cannot coax the corn high enough to put into the garden yet. I've got my little grow light thing for vegetables, not that other stuff. And I then move everything from the grow light into the garden and the, the corn sucks. I mean, it's just suck. and it's like the fancy dancy corn, uh, the seed corn. This is the stuff that they, you know, it doesn't have GMOs, it blah, 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 you know, you know, all the granola stuff. Yeah, it's got all that stuff going for it. And it sucks, apparently. But there you are. Now, something else going on in my life. I've had to pick up a tennis racket for the first time in years and I'm I'm terrible. I've been you know hitting a little bit, and I'm I'm timing is all off. I'm terrible, which is dangerous when you're heading for a four day tennis hit and giggle with friends. And uh, it's been a while since I've been with all these people. And you know, think guys' golf trip when they say, "Hey, wouldn't it be great if?" Yeah, and you haven't picked up a club for a while, haven't had a bucket of balls. Exactly. This is this is what's happening. And I'm just praying that I can fake it until I get grooved in. That's all I'm saying. First world problems, I know. But the first world problems get worse. I haven't watched Real Housewives since the latest franchises fired up because for some reason... We didn't get the DVR function in our latest cable package. So I usually bank those and then watch them and then, you know, fast forward through the stupid parts, of which there are many, by the way. But, you know, here's the surprise. I don't actually miss any of these shows anymore. I, I don't because they're so formulaic now and so dumb. And uh, and I used to think that was kind of the fun part of watching it. Oh, let's see who gets in a fight or picks a fight with so-and-so and, and you know, tries to make hay out of it. And I used to think that was fun, but I don't think it's fun anymore because... It's all fake. I know. I, I've known it's fake. Do not. Don't stop laughing. I knew it was fake. It's just that it's getting more fake. And and there's a point at which the fakery cannot be faked anymore. And it's a parody of itself. So my husband and I are streaming shows. And, and I've gotten him to watch something our daughter told us to watch the Daryl Darrells and Corfu, Corfu, whatever. I mean, it's a great show, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's wonderful. It takes place in Corfu. That's all I know. It's fantastic. Occurs in the 1930s, pre-World War II, and uh, it's a wonderful story. Wonderful. Let's see. Oh, yes, and we'll soon be picking up where we left off, Narcos in Mexico. So if you have any suggestions for other shows we should stream or watch, etc., that will be of the same vein in the same ilk, 
which is, by the way, considering the subject matter, quite a wide swath. Give me those ideas. Victoria at VictoriaTaft.com. Okay. Now, I finally applied for my concealed carry weapons permit, and I had to go get fingerprinted and all that stuff. This is the only thing for which I would gladly be fingerprinted, right? Because, uh, and they've got everything. And they had to do it three times. Because apparently I don't have enough moisture in my fingers. And then she said to me, this gal over at the fingerprint place, and she says, well, you know, you can always come back. And I'm like, I, I, no. I mean, I'm thinking in my head. I didn't say this overtly. But I hate do-overs. I really hate do-overs. Uh, this makes no sense. I ain't nobody got time for this. And so I'm going to a different city to sit in a waiting room to wait for my name to be called so you can tell me that my fingerprints aren't great And if if they decide that they're going to, this, at the state of Washington, uh, get rid of my fingerprints. Uh, in other words, the, say that they're not right. Then I have to come back and do it all again. And I'm like, no. So I said to her, I'm willing to wait and see if we can do it again here now. And she looked at me and I think she saw that look in my eye, eye of the tiger. And, and it was, oh, okay, sure. Like, it, you know, like about army guys sitting around here and other people, I don't even know what they're doing there. One was a teacher who wanted to get her background check or something like that. And it, it, Who's got time to do it over again? Nobody's got time. Just if you think this is going to be iffy, I'll take your word for it. Let's do it again now. So, I mean, I don't get it. Why would you think it would be fine for me to come back? Oh, they might. You know, you got a few things here and a few things there. And here, here, let me, here's, I'll put this goo on your hands. and We'll put your hands in these plastic uh, rubber, whatever they are, gloves, the disposable ones I I actually use the new trial. Is that how you say it? Gloves to cook with and stuff. And um, yeah, because it saves my hands. Uh, apparently not well enough to get decent fingerprints. But there you are. Which which uh, brings me to my latest gun news, to which the insufferable blowhard Keith Olbermann. Remember him? He of ESPA. P- take two on that. ESPN fame. <laughs> <laughs> and MSNBC infamy. Remember when Keith Olbermann was funny? Does anybody remember those days? Probably not, because it's been so long. Uh, anyway, uh, so in response to a judge's decision stating that California's overturning of an AR-15 ban was unconstitutional, and, and, and Keith Olbermann said, well, pretend it's in Keith Olbermann's style. Except it was on Twitter. I'm sure he's going to say it on his television show, which is on YouTube, which is a perfect blend for him. It's a match made in heaven because YouTube and Keith Olbermann, which is to say Google and Keith Olbermann, are of one mind. They agree on many things. And this is just one another thing uh, upon which they agree. And it's this, the judge. And here's what he said. That's... Judge Roger Benitez, a death-worshipping fascist who never noticed that the word own or anything like it is absent from the Second Amendment. We can no longer tolerate gun nuts in the judiciary. And the only thing missing from this was a you, sir. 
And if I were to do it in the Keith Olbermann style, it would be frightening and it would be seething. And it would, you could tell that his voice was being uttered from the depths of inside his mouth and behind clenched teeth. And it would be something like, that's Judge Bonitas, a death-worshipping fascist. <laughs> you, sir. Yeah. I remember watching Overman on L.A.'s Channel 4, I think it was, back in the day, NBC affiliate then. And I remember thinking, as the, I mean, I used to see mentions of Keith Olbermann. He was the sports guy. That's why he got the ESPN gig. Many of you don't even know who he is, which is fine, because he belongs in absolute seclusion. His reputation is sullied. And he needs to, he just needs to disappear. But nevertheless, everybody said, oh, isn't he clever? Oh, this is what Olbermann said in his latest utterance on Channel 4. And, um, you know, it was just, okay. You know, I was working in San Diego at the time. And and I used to, I used to read the LA Times all the time. And that's where these accolades for Olbermann would be in, in the media column in the LA Times sports section because our sports section in San Diego sucked. And uh, so anyway, that's neither here nor there. But, but, oh, he's so clever. Keith, Keith Olbermann is so clever. I remember all of the accolades coming on Keith Olbermann because he was clever. Linda Ellerby clever, he thought, that he wasn't as that clever. I was thinking he wasn't that clever. Not clever. Not. Sometimes he was funny. But I think that more, had more to do with Dan Patrick going along with it on ESPN and, uh, and other things rather than just Olbermann being, oh, <laughs> hard, high, clever. So self-involved he is. Well, anyway, so Keith's doing a show on YouTube and is now calling people death-worshipping fascists again because that's what he does. Uh, and that's where he started on... Um, his, you know, MSNBC show. But that brings me to why he was all spun up about the death-worshipping fascist because the judge, in this case, it was about a a ruling and uh, the death-worshipping fascist judge said that uh, the California ban on assault weapons was unconstitutional. And the state's definition, I'm reading here, of illegal military-style rifles unlawfully deprives law-abiding Californians of weapons commonly allowed in most other states and by the U.S. Supreme Court, the judge wrote, about which he's absolutely correct, even though he's a death-worshipping fascist, according to Keith Olbermann. Judge Roger Benitez, whose name is now um, said with, you, sir, Uh, has favored pro-gun groups in the past, I read here. Describe the AR-15 rifle used in many of the nation's deadliest mass shootings. Actually, it's not used in many of the deadliest mass shootings. As an, he, he described it as an ideal weapon. It's like a Swiss Army knife, said the judge. The popular AR-15 is a perfect combination of home defense and homeland defense. Yet the state of California makes it a crime to have an AR-15-type rifle, Benitez continued. Therefore, this court declares the California statute to be unconstitutional. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, all of the usual suspects were very, very upset over the uh, death-worshipping fascists saying that, I'm kidding when I say that, by the way. Are we all clear on that? I'm saying it in fun because, of course, Benitez is right, naturally. He's right. And the AR-15 ban in California is unconstitutional, and Gavin Newsom was in high dudgeon about it. The fact that this judge compared the AR-15, a weapon of war that's used on the battlefield, to a Swiss Army knife completely undermines the credibility of his decision and is a slap in the face to the families who've lost loved ones to this weapon. And then everybody went on, continued with the straw man argument about the Swiss Army knife. He was just talking about the ease with which one could use it for a many different uses. Hence the Swiss Army knife metaphor, or simile, maybe more accurately said. And uh, so that's why he said that. But of course, naturally... They used the Swiss Army knife thing to say that you don't get murdered by Swiss Army knives, do you? You death-worshipping fascist. And, uh, of course, majoring in minors over on the side over there. And instead of uh, the actual fundamental issue pertaining to the constitutionality of said weapon. Some people are stupid and they do do dumb things. With guns. That person the other day who ran over a cop in Seattle was more deadly than the overwhelming number of people who own guns who don't use it for uh, homicidal purposes or mass shootings, etc. And I've got more to say on this because those pe- those dumb people are almost as dumb as Keith Olbermann stating that the reason the Second Amendment basically doesn't exist is because the word own isn't in the Second Amendment to the Constitution. In other words, bear and keep are not similar or they are not uh, synonyms to uh, own, according to Keith Hilberman, death worshiping fascist. And it appears that Keith can't read, even though he's clever, right? He's clever. So, someone please get Keith Olbermann a thesaurus. That would be helpful. He needs to get a thesaurus for whatever holidays he celebrates. Uh, and uh, I think perhaps some, some nice chamomile tea would be perfect for Keith Olbermann. Well, anyway, so speaking of gun haters, a L.A. Times opinion writer decided the other day that uh, her name is Virginia Heffernan, decided that something's missing from all of the real estate ads and information. Apparently, they think about these things, the point he heads do over at the LA Times. And here's what she says is missing from the MLS. And that is statistics on gun ownership in certain neighborhoods. She wrote on the Twitters, and I'm really going to miss Twitter when it goes away and it kills itself because of its own falling of its own weight of self-importance. I'm really going to miss that because I get so much good news from, I mean, interesting news out of Twitter, but there you are. Anyway, back to our story. She said real estate listings should include prevalence of gun ownership in a 50 mile radius. So somebody lived 50 miles away and they had a gun, it would go down in the stats. She might be surprised at how many people own guns. Just a thought. She'd also like information on the number of annual mass shootings in the region She says, it's time to change what a bad neighborhood is. I don't even know what she means by that, but I'm sure we're all racist for having 
even indulge the question. What if someone owns a modern sporting rifle, also known as the best-selling hunting rifle in America? She believes, Red State continues, that it would constitute a bad place for children and introduce a meaningful tax on guns and gun violence. No one should say, she wrote, this is a great place to raise kids about neighborhoods where even one person has an assault rifle. Okay, Virginia. Not me. I'm Victoria. She's Virginia. I'm often called Virginia and Gloria. So Virginia and Gloria equals Victoria. I've been in the business a long time, and you'll never believe how many people have called me that. Finally, 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 let's get back to someone other than me. NBC News. Let's go back there again, because they've decided to define down what mass shootings are. And currently, according to the FBI, mass shootings are considered four or more victims in one single incident. But now NBC has decided that every love triangle murder-suicide should be considered a mass event as well. Even every town USA, the anti-Michael Bloomberg group, anti-gun group, every town USA or whatever it's called, they keep reinventing names for these different groups, Moms Demand Action, etc. But anyway, they say four constitutes a mass shooting because that's what the FBI uses. So you go, NBC, you go. And of course, we won't be able to cross-pollinate all the stats because and all the different studies because they're all going to use different rationale. And there you have it. But I just want to say more than 75% of all so-called mass shootings, all killings, all homicides, uh, were done with pistols, not AR-15s. So, but you knew that. People just don't, some, some people just don't like guns and just consider them not a tool, but just a weapon. Weapon of war! You devil-worshipping fascist! So, <laughs> all right, time for our guest on the Adult in the Room podcast today. I was moved by a loving homage on Memorial Day on Twitter, an homage by a retired retired Navy man who went through his Naval Academy classmates to speak of their exploits and their sacrifice. So I wanted to talk to Tom Sauer about that and what he's doing now, which is running recovery homes for addicted veterans. He's funny, he's engaging, and he has some stories to tell. He's full of life. Let's listen. Thank you, Thomas Sauer, for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yeah, you did. That's okay. correct. Yeah, it's uh, often uh, confused for Tom Sawyer. Uh, I get a lot and always want to thank mom and dad for that one. Yeah. So, yeah, I got, usually got that a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's I had a kid in one of our uh, little uh, high school or yeah, yeah, high school groups when we were leaders at our church, um, whose parents thought it would be hilarious to name her Crystal when their last names are Ball. Oh, um, yeah, that was awesome. And then, uh, well, is it Crystal Ball the same one who's on uh, Rising? No, the no, same no, pundit? Oh, okay. no. I have no idea what my Crystal's doing, but she's not that Crystal. Yeah, yeah. that's another one. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Let's do that to our kid. I know. I, I, there's one gal that I went to, um, I was at the Naval Academy with, and uh, great gal, but uh, and she's a Marine officer now, but her full name is Precious Snow White. That is her full name. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Poor kid. No wonder she went to the Marines. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't call me that or I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yep. uh, so the other day, uh, over the Memorial Day weekend, I noticed your thread tweeted out by uh, one of my uh, friends, Kurt Schuchter, and he's... And I just started reading the thread that you had written on the Memorial Day weekend, and it originated from 2019, but it was so moving. It just received so much attention this Memorial Day weekend that I wanted to ask you about it and to talk about what you're doing now with your life. And we don't know each other. We we don't know each other from Adam, but I was drawn into what you had to say about your your compatriots, your brothers in arms, and I wanted to run it down with you, starting with the timeline that you talked about and how it led you to where you are today. Yeah, no, no, I I, got to say, I remember that day. it, It was strange. Like, it became very surreal. And um, I live in Orange County, California right now uh, out here. I I, uh, own a mental health and addiction treatment company. Uh, Right now, we treat almost exclusively veterans. That's very much what we're geared towards. Um, And it's funny you mentioned Kurt, who's one of my close friends, and he's also my attorney. So I'm also one of his clients, full disclosure. That's Um, amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I'm uh, Kurt. Kurt and I are pretty close. So that's uh, awesome. He, yeah, he's he's a great guy. We we started off as just friends and acquaintances, and then there was a time where I need a little bit of uh, legal advice. I thought, you know what? He's in Southern California. I'm moving to Southern California. I think he'd probably be uh, a good fit. And so he's been absolutely fantastic. Both him and his partner Steve Schoenacker are great, and also you know we're we're buddies too. That's but um, yeah, that was. But I remember that day. Um, I lived in Washington D.C. at the time. Uh, I would. I was just recently out of the service, fairly recently, and um, I had. Um, when I got out, I was stationed out there, and I always had a lot of friends, from, uh, friends and classmates from Naval Academy, and obviously a lot of folks who are in the D.C. area. Obviously, it's a major hub, and um, you know, was always you know to drive past Arlington all the time, and I um, and every you know, a couple times a year, I'd stop by there and we go to section 60, which for those who are not aware, who don't spend a lot of time, uh, out in DC, that section 60 at Arlington national cemetery is where the vast majority of recent, uh, burials are from, um, the wars from the past 20 years. And so, you know, I, I, in this one section of Arlington, um, you can, I mean, I've got, you know, half a dozen people I knew, all within buried, all from different circles from the military. Some I went to school with, folks I might have served with who were both officers and enlisted, and, uh, but they're all buried within, you know, 150, 200 meters of each other, which is, you know, kind of surreal. And so I, um, I, I remember this, Memorial Day is right around the time that my Naval Academy class graduated. You know, the, the Naval Academy class of 2021 just graduated last Friday. And so it's usually the last Friday in May, which is right around Memorial Day weekend. And I wrote just a post about, hey, that was, you know, this is when we graduated 13 years ago. It's now been 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it, I noticed it picked up a lot of attention just because I, I mentioned, you know, some of the guys that I um, – I went to school with who are not with us anymore and, but not just the folks who aren't with us, but folks who've been hurt, folks who've done amazing things with their lives as well. And it got some attention. And, you know, in that tweet there, I kind of put, since this received some attention, I figured I'd share Memorial day with you. And so I went over to Arlington and I just, I thought it was great because one of the amazing things about Twitter, despite how 
awful Twitter can be in many ways. Twitter's right. also uh, social media in general can be fantastic in, for, for stuff like this. And so I started uh, just kind of going down the line of folks that I, I knew and uh, folks I was either, you know, friends with or served with or people that my brother served with. And I started just kind of going down that line right there. And, uh, you know, the most notable one right away who was, you know, he was somewhat recent, but he, my brother was pretty close to him, was Scotty Dayton, who was, you know, the first American that was uh, killed in Syria. Uh, I didn't know Scotty real well. My brother did, and my brother was a big a big fan of his, and uh, really looked up to Scotty quite a bit at out of EUD Mobile Unit Two, and um, I, and you know that wasn't exact that was not an exaggeration when I said that, you know it was on we had literally had Thanksgiving dinner on the table. My brother uh, was on leave, I was uh, home on leave, and I remember we were just sitting there at the at the table at my uh, my parents' house in Washington State. And my brother's phone rang and then it rang again and then it rang again. Mm. And he's like, Hey, I got to take this. And he saw, and he didn't recognize the number right away, but it was his commanding officer um, who mm. called to say, Hey, I'm calling all the officers and let everyone at the mobile unit know that Scotty Dayton was killed. And uh, so Dan, my little bro just walks back in the room and he, he's like, Hey, that was, uh, that was commander Shane. Uh, Scotty Dayton just died. And it was just, you know, you hear the fork drop, you know, that kind of thing. It was a small Thanksgiving dinner. It was just my immediate family. And uh, that was a rough one. I mean, it really was a kick in the gut. I mean, that's exactly how it went down. And it was, I remember I remember I looked at Dan. I kind of leaned back in my chair. And go, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, I was like, damn it. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that was rough. That, that was a rough one. Um, and more for my brother. And then, and then, of course, I thought about everyone else and, it was soon after that time that I um, was on my way moving out to Washington, D.C. from San Diego. And um, I stopped in Virginia Beach. I made a detour to see uh, my brother and uh, his in-laws. Uh, his wife is from Virginia Beach and his in-laws are there. And so that's where Scotty was stationed. And Virginia Beach is one of the big hubs out there. So uh, we went to his church, to his uh, service at the Wave Church, his large church in Virginia Beach, and then followed with a, a very, a very large wake, uh, which was, I got to say, it was a blast. It sounds silly, but it was. Mm -hmm. But, um, and, and there's a weird sidetrack, maybe a weird segue, is, is some of the best times that I remember having, like the most emotional high and the most connection I felt with folks that I, uh, with guys and gals that I uh, either went to the Naval Academy with or, or was in the Navy with, was actually the funerals. And that sounds awful. No. It really was. I mean, it was when you put it, it the, when you put it the way you did about the wakes, where you can uh, celebrate a life, cry on each other's shoulder. That's that's an emotional give and take that is not replicated in many other places. So I understand that. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was, it, and there, and um, and that was you know, it sounds silly, but it was. I mean, it was a lot of fun. I mean, if you saw, there's that one picture there that I kind of took because. You know, I, I kind of had to go into my camera roll to find a couple of, of pictures out there, at least one that was a good fit. And you can see in the picture, I mean, there's a it's a Chick's Oyster Bar, which is a well-known, you know, for, for folks who are in the SEAL or the EOD community in Virginia Beach. It's kind of like the spot. Mm -hmm. And uh, you see a bunch of guys and everyone's you see like everyone's laughing and smiling. Right. And um, yeah. and, and which, you know, it. It was, it, but it's, it, we kind of try to make it happy. And then um, another example, when I talk about uh, Ford Shaw, 
Stanford Henry Shaw III. He's he was also listed in the picture. There's my classmate at Naval Academy. He died in a helicopter crash in 2015, and we got the word. And whenever and that was turned out to be like a sounds strange, but like a class reunion for many of us. And it was out in uh, Morristown, New Jersey. And uh, you know, I'd never been out there before, and it was was crazy about it. I mean, for like a day and a half, two days, it was, you know, it was me and all my friends and a lot of Ford's friends that he served with that we hadn't met. And we just laughed and drank and cried for two days. Actually, I mean, some guys cried. It's weird. It sounds strange, but I didn't like cry until I left. Yeah. It was like driving my rental car back to the airport and I was alone in the car and all of a sudden just kind of like, just kind of started breaking down. And it wasn't so much because of like I was sad. It was just like, it was almost like this cathartic, like, wow, that was just a really emotional thing that I just went through. Mm. And, um, yeah. And, and I, I, I hope it didn't come off like I'm rambling too much, but it's no, a, to fine. rewind back to, to Ford's funeral is that, um, I mean, it was crazy. We, <laughs> we, I remember, <clears throat> and this was a, a funny, I mean, it was almost like, as comical it was, is, um, we got there the night before, and of course, we a lot of guys hadn't seen each other. It had been what nine nine years since we graduated from the academy, a and ago. a lot. Of, yeah, which I mean doesn't sound that long, but it was you know it was the year before our ten year reunion. But a lot of we had just hadn't seen each other. And it was great to see everyone and catch up, and you know who's gotten married, who's had kids, who's gotten divorced, who's gotten this, you know, and just yeah. all these things. And, um, and of course that turned into some very heavy drinking and just kind of rough housing and just, you know, uh, um, just being kind of jackasses for a lot of us. And I remember t- two friends of mine were, I mean, it was like, they're like frat boys. They're just like wrestling in the hallway. And these are grown <laughs> men, by the way. I mean, these, literally, these are grown men, uh, you know, multiple deployments under their belt and they, they're just wrestling, but like play wrestling. And they're not like, you know, nobody's really trying to hurt each other. Right. And one guy actually breaks his buddy's arm oh. that night. And, you know, I'm not naming names to protect the guilty, but it was, you know, and one guy broke his buddy's arm and they ended up spending the night in the emergency room. And so then the guy with his arm broken shows up at the funeral the next morning, could barely uh, fit into his dress uniform because he had a cast on his arm, uh. could barely get the sleeve, get it over his sleeve. And I remember we all, they load us all up in the shuttle buses and it would snowed the night before. And so, I mean, it, like the whole ride in there turned into like almost like a like a country music song. I mean, the police had cordoned off the whole area around the cemetery and we go past the fire station, all the firefighters there is out in, in New Jersey, Morristown, New Jersey. And they had the crane up, you know, the, the ladder mm-hmm. on the um, uh, on the fire truck and hanging an American flag from it. And all the local firefighters were standing in line as we drove past our shuttle bus and they're all saluting. And uh, we get there to the grave site and there was, you know, you look and you see there was probably about 250 to 300 uh, Marines and sailors and, and Navy officers there and friends and family. Uh, and there was, cause there's no funeral at the church. The wake was the night before. Uh-huh. And so we're all in a giant semicircle in this, you know, in the cemetery around Ford's grave. And I remember, uh, you know, his little brother, um, was, gave the eulogy right there at his gravesite, and it, it was and oh. and it was uh, Tyler, his you know Ford's um, hilarious and charismatic, flamboyantly gay little brother, who gave the who gave the <laughs> talk. And I remember he'd said he was like he said Ford, you always knew I was different. You stuck up for me when we were growing. You know, you stood up for me when we were growing up. You know, you're just like oh god. You know, we're all just you know this is just this. You know, um, 
you know, kick in the stomach for so many. It was just really emotional. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember then afterwards, you know, and, every, and he, he was cracking jokes. And I mean, at the end afterwards, he was like, go Navy, beat Army and all the rest. And then there was one final thing that they had was they had uh, they backed a car up and they had cases of Jack Daniels and cases of shot glasses with the Marine Corps insignia on it. And it was like 300 shot glasses. And they immediately just started handing them all out. And me and another one of my good close friends, uh, a good buddy, like, you know, we're, I'm there with two bottles of Jack Daniels in my hand. And we're just immediately as fast as we can, just pouring shots for everyone. One guy's handing out shot glasses and the other guy's pouring shots out to everybody. Wow. And it took like, you know, five, 10 minutes to hand all these out. And we, everyone just stood there with a shot and we all raised our glasses and it was to Ford. It was to Ford. And we all, and you know, 300 sailors and Marines and family members all took a shot together right there. And, uh, and then we all came by visit his grave. They had uh, his casket with the Marine Corps Raider flag, the Marine, that's the Marine Special Operations guys, uh, draped over his casket, and uh, the command coin, and a bottle of Jameson on the on the casket when they lowered it in. And we all just kind of stood there, and you know, everyone paid their respects. And then next thing you know, because some of the guys, including the guy, the one guy with the broken arm, and the guy that broke his arm, oh. they're still kind of drunk <laughs> when they get there. <laughs> And everyone starts laughing. And the next thing you know, we're walking away because some of these guys, like I noticed this because we just didn't know how to process what was going on. Uh And we usually use some sort of humor. Um, You know, uh, a former Senator James Webb, former Secretary of the Navy, who's an Academy grad, wrote a ton of books about the Academy and the Marine Corps. talks about how we're comically abusive to each other, which is very true. And Mm -hmm. we're, we're very comically abusive. And one guy throws a snowball at the other guy right there at Ford's grave. And then somebody throws another one and then another. And next thing you know, you had a dozen guys in a massive snowball fight ducking behind tombstones. Oh, that's and awesome. This huge, huge <laughs> snowball fight. And I remember as well, what was crazy though, is there was a, a two-star general who was there. Who's now a four-star. His name is General Osterman. And he was the, I think he was the deputy commander of Marine Corps Special Operations Command. I think later, I think he became, I think he's a deputy commander of, all U.S. Special Forces, and somebody saw it. And I remember I poured him a shot just 10 minutes earlier. It was mm. weird. I was just kind of walking by, and we're all in dress uniforms. I look at the general. I go, shot? And, he, and he's like, yeah, go ahead. And I pour him a shot. And I said, yeah, I remember, general, you want a shot? Yeah, sure. There you go, general. And anyways, the people started, <laughs> one guy throws a snowball at the general as he's walking away. And uh, he kind of stopped. It landed near his feet, and he kind of stopped, and he kind of looked at us like, don't don't make me do anything about this. <laughs> you know. <'Cause, laughs> and the thing is, I think it was good. I think General Ostrom was smart because, you know, if he were to try to, you know, pull rank or, or you know, start getting real upset, he, he knew better just to walk away because, you know, one of the interesting things is I think he realized enough that like, hey, you're a guest. Here. You might be a two star, but you're a guest here at our funeral. That's right. This is our buddy, you know, so he just knew like, I'm just going to walk away. <laughs> So which you got to pick your battles. Right. Exactly. So he, he, he knew like, I'm just going to walk away. And then of course we get back on the shuttle buses. We head towards the reception or the wake. And, uh, <laughs> remember, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it, I'll keep it clean, but oh, you don't have I remember that we we're sitting on the shuttle bus and I'm with two of my good buddies and who I hadn't seen in a while. And on the shuttle bus back to the hotel was, uh, Ford's aunt, and her two sons, so these are Ford's cousins who are teenage boys, or like look like 14, 15, or 16. And she said, Hey, did you guys knew Ford really well? I said, Yeah, we knew Ford. Yeah. 
I said, hey, tell us a, tell us a funny story about Ford. Mm-hmm. And my one buddy, the same guy who had broke his friend's arm, <laughs> he says, I'll tell you a story about Ford. And he went on to tell in explicit detail about one of Ford's escapades in Cancun, spring break. Yeah, of, of uh, you know, Ford is good with the ladies, put it that way. Uh, (laughs) in in, uh, very explicit detail (laughs) about all that. (laughs) And of course, you know, uh, all color from his aunt's face drops and, but the two teenage uh, sons, uh, Ford's little cousins were just loving it. And they're like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) they're like Ford was a stud. My cousin was a stud. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought it was hilarious. But anyways, and then we went back and we went to the hotel and we just had, I mean, it was just a a huge tribute and something else that was crazy about Ford was that a lot of people always say like, Hey, I, you know, Hey, if I ever die, I want my funeral just to be, you know, uh, everyone just laugh and have a good time. And, you know, maybe just put a bunch of money in the barns, open bar on me or something like that. We all have fun. You know, everyone likes to say that Ford had ponied up and did it. He had $10,000 set aside. Wow. That if he were ever, yeah, if he was ever, you know, killed or anything like that, or something bad happened to him. So literally there was $10,000 on the bar and, uh, we, everybody went through it pretty quickly in just a couple hours. Oh, but, uh-huh. uh, I believe that. And we, went from there yeah although can i just can i just say here i I don't want to be a buzzkill or anything but no jack daniels is horrible i i I just want to put it out there it's just awful i mean it's not even good whiskey and i know all the military guys love it but oh lord okay i mean i guess you could get it in bulk i suppose it was easy to get in bulk i suppose you can get it anywhere there's a reason you can get it anywhere oh wow that's true that that is true which is interesting because as a tie-in because i noticed because after a while it was like because what I do now is, you know, what I'm in now is just, you know, what five years later is, you know, I don't drink anymore. And, you know, I, I never had to go to like treatment or I go to AA meetings, but, you know, I went and I noticed how like alcohol was just this huge, just underlying theme through so much of the military. Uh-huh. And for a lot of guys, it really destroyed their lives or was just a contributing factor at the very least. And even though, trust me, it certainly has its benefits and it's definitely good in a lot of ways, but also it's like, I, you know, I, I deal now with what I do. I, I see, you know, so many guys who are in the military, but I mean, it's not unique to the military. It's everywhere. Of course. Is whose lives are completely destroyed by drugs and alcohol, you know? And, and that's like one of the things that I do now is, you know, I, I, I own a company and we've got about 40 employees now. Wow. And most of our job is, is really treating, um, veterans who are alcoholic addicts and also who are struggling with all sorts of mental health issues, whether it's PTSD or, or something else. Well, and on your yeah. thread on Twitter, you talk yeah. about all, a lot of your exploits. I mean, going all <laughs> over the world. I mean, you were bomb tech, so you worked. A, were you considered a special operator? You yeah. Like- so yeah, it's it's we're, we're um, my my designator within the Navy is a special operations officer, not to be confused with a SEAL which is but the Navy because uh, a special warfare officer. I know that's just oh, one semantics, but yeah, that's, um, and so the Navy EOD community spent a little bit of time in both what we call like the conventional Navy, like the blue water Navy, which is like searching for, you know, um, well, not so much searching before disposing of Naval mines and being the on-call um, force for any like conventional 
explosive hazards. But then we also have an, one another foot in the special operations world, which is um, a whole nother ball of wax. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my last overseas deployment was with an Army Special Forces unit, um, which is our specifically the job is, is we're um, we worked with like what we refer to as like the big boys, which is like your SEAL Team 6, your Delta Force and all that is uh, we worked what we call the high dollar mission, so to speak, which mm-hmm. is counter WMD. So it was I mean, some of the training I went through was absolutely amazing. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time at the, the National Laboratories at Los Alamos uh, yes. in New Mexico and, uh, you know, Idaho National Laboratory, Sandia National Laboratory. We went through some really, really intense and um, technical training. So basically our job that we that we did, among other things, but one of our jobs that we were prepared to do was to be able to identify, confirm, or deny um, the presence of a terrorist nuclear weapon or chemical, biological weapon, weapon of mass destruction. And that particular mission set who act to actually like disarm a nuclear, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, what we call an IND, an improvised nuclear device, yeah. oh, uh, belongs to the Navy EOD unit at SEAL Team 6. And, uh, well, you know, that's the, the unit all known as SEAL Team 6, sure. right? I'll put it that way. Sure. What, what's their latest it. name? They've gone through several iterations now. Uh, it, I mean, technically, it's, I don't know, I'll get myself in trouble, but I mean, it, let, let me put it this way. <laughs> if you look it up on Wikipedia, I can read on Wikipedia, it says, okay. <laughs> right? All right. Naval Special Warfare Development Group, the right? Group. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, also known, yeah, I, I read that on the internet, put it that way. Yeah, I read so, it in a book. I mean, that, I read it in a book. Let's just say that I read that in a book. So I'm a spy we'll, thriller. We'll, I'm a spy thriller uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, fan as well as uh, I do audiobooks and I write uh, or rather I read some uh, spy thrillers, believe it or not, yeah. for John okay. Trudell. Yeah, it's pretty rad. Uh, oh, Brad, yeah. Brad, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brad Thor and, and, and so, a girl and stuff like that. It's pretty, pretty cool. So, in fact, it was a Brad cool. Thor book. I think it was uh-huh. that I learned about DevGrew. So anyway. Yeah, it's it's, you know, some, uh, you know, people call different names. Yeah. Usually, you know, it's SEAL Team Six or Team Six, or but also got like DevGrew, or most commonly I hear like the parlance from the guys they say development group, mm. you know, whatever, because you know, they have all that. So there's a, there's a Navy EOD um, unit, uh, it's a, a squadron at DevGrew, and their and, and like their job obviously if you look at like uh, you know if you if you read on the internet reading the books, you know they're the premier counter terrorist unit in the U.S. military, and then what's the greatest the biggest terrorist threat or concern out there would be, you know, somebody try to sneak a nuclear weapon into Washington, D.C. or Manhattan or anything, something like that, or, you know, or some other one of our partners, you know, into an allied city, you know, sneak it into like Paris or, you know, who knows, you know, where, wherever. And so the Navy EOD <coughs> component of uh, SEAL Team 6 is there to, you know, um, Take care of it. Leave it at that. I see you jumping <laughs> out of planes and fast roping. So you're yeah. right there with those guys. Yeah, it was fun. We did a, I did a bunch of stuff. It was really great. I did a ton of exercises with foreign militaries, which I really enjoyed. I got to say, the best guys I ever worked with anywhere in terms of just the personalities and the way they did their jobs was uh, the Australian Special Air Service. They were amazing guys. Oh, and, you yeah. know, everyone always makes, you know, everyone always kind of talks about how Australia, you know, they're usually a bit, you know, they're, they're all the stereotypes you think about, like Australian dudes but like more so and and they were incredibly competent capable um incredibly well trained but also they did everything they made it all look easy and they're laughing and smiling and joking the whole way 
which is amazing. I mean, it was just, they, they were able to take some really tough, amazing stuff and they're just, you know, just kind of take it and just like shrug and laugh. I think about Australian great. rules football and I think, yeah, those are some hard bodied badasses over there. Yeah. Yeah. And they were great. I mean, I absolutely loved working with them. They're, they're, they're fantastic. I still keep in touch with a couple of them today. Um, and, uh, that was great. I mean, I spent, um, good part of the summer in Australia and then I spent another part of the summer in, uh, uh, in New Zealand doing the same thing with the Kiwi, uh, SAS. So yeah, it was great. I mean, I loved working with those guys. It was, it was phenomenal, but you know, I got to say that like my time in the military, I got to do some really interesting things, you know, just some fun exercises. Um, I did a couple of kind of cool things that like that were not what we'd say like kinetic as in like, you know, I'm one of the few Navy EOD guys that, you know, I'm I, uh, you know, ashamed to say I didn't, I never went to Afghanistan. I did, you know, I, I, I've been to Iraq briefly, but it was pretty uneventful. But most of my time was focused in the Western Pacific, uh, thinking about China, um, mm. did some interesting stuff, mostly like kind of intelligence focused, uh, did a lot of stuff where, you know, not wearing a uniform and yeah. or, or pulling things, trying to, you know, steal things from the Chinese and uh, dealing oh, with that and you were kind of stuff. You were kind of being a spook over there. That's interesting. Uh, I worked with those guys, put it that I, I, I spent some time at embassies. You know, oh, in, yes. in partner countries and whatnot. I wouldn't put it that way. So it was fun. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I, that was really, really good work. I, I did enjoy that quite a bit. And then um, and then afterwards, you know, once you get to a certain point in your career being an officer, you, as we say, you get kicked upstairs. Meaning it was no longer, I'm no longer with the boys doing fun stuff, jumping out of planes, blowing stuff up or anything like that. It was a staff job and then another staff job. And so then while I was stationed in Coronado on, um, uh, I was on the staff for the EOD Commodore. So in, out in, basically he was uh, in charge of all EOD forces in uh, the Western United States and all through the Pacific. Uh, I was on his staff. And while I was there, I, uh, you know, it was a standard nine to five desk job. It wasn't bad. I had some good travel. I like that. Coronado was great. Uh, yeah, it was nice. It was nice thing. Yeah, I lived. I lived in Coronado. It's beautiful, um, which is great. And then I did a um, an MBA program out of UCLA on in my spare time. And we, and it was a joint program between UCLA and the National University of Singapore. So it meant I was spent a lot more time back out in the Pacific, which I loved. We had a trip to Sing. We you know I spent time in Singapore, India, China. Mm. which is great. Loved it. And so, but what I did though is that allowed me. To, I looked around. I thought to myself, I see guys who are like my age, some were younger, some were older. And I saw what they're doing. And I'm like, these guys are, some of these guys are really smart, really capable. I mean, these are guys who, who it was an executive program. So most people were, were a little pretty further along in their careers. Many of them own their own businesses or already at that C-suite level. And these are some really high performing guys and gals and who many of whom just in terms of their, their smarts, their instinct, their attitude, these guys can make it in any sort of special operations program. Maybe, you know, they might need to be able to run a little faster, do some more push-ups or sit-ups. Sure. Okay. But they still had that right mindset and they would, and they thought a lot of like guys that I knew and I saw, but like they're, they're independent. Mostly they're making a lot more money. They have a lot more control over their lives, which I liked. And because I kind of saw myself like, I'm not doing the stuff that I really want to do anymore. So that was kind of one point where I decided, you know, I, I think I might, I really started considering getting out. They were going to send me back to, uh, to the Western Pacific for a tour, which I would have enjoyed doing some intelligence work, mm -hmm. 
that job got turned off. I was going to get maybe a desk job at the Pentagon at best. And I said, you know what, I'm done. So that was it. And a lot of people were upset about that. And that's fine. And so I, uh, you know, I just kind of pulled the trigger and got out. And, you know, I could have, if I had hung around for a few more years, I could have retired. But I said, you know, I'm going to roll the dice, take my chances. I still had enough hustle years in me. And I didn't want to just ride it out until 20, you know, until 20 or 21, 22 years. And then, um, you know, by then I'm I'm tired, you know, I'm like, I want to start. I still wanted to hustle. So I uh, got out. I uh, worked for a defense contractor for, you know, six months just to kind of pay the bills. It paid well, but it wasn't really upwardly mobile. Um, It was an Israeli firm, which (laughs) I really did enjoy. I mean, they sent me to Norway. I was basically selling uh, combat diving equipment and special operations equipment to foreign special forces and uh, and also to U.S. military. You know, it's like selling stuff to my friends, mm-hmm. essentially, you yeah. know, selling stuff, we use, you know, to our friends. I, and I liked it. It was fine, but it wasn't really going anywhere. I could see I, I could stay in that job for 10, 15 years. I'd be doing the same thing, making a little bit more money. It wasn't really going to go anywhere. So decided to strike it on my own. And um, wow. and that's where the addiction side kind of like caught my interest. So kind of rewind back is right before I joined the military, my, um, this is my, my father, my biological father had struggled with drugs and alcohol, uh, his entire life. And, uh, it eventually it actually killed him. So three days before I became an Eagle Scout, five days before I graduated from high school and three weeks, uh, before I left for, um, for the military, uh, he died of a, an overdose and he's, yeah, he's still, he's buried about, um, he, he owned a ranch out in the desert, out in Barstow, California, <clears throat> near, near Barstow. Um, and he's, uh, and where he, you know, and obviously the, the ranch itself was foreclosed on, the bank took it, and we don't really know what else happened to it. Some other owners came on. Mm. And the property itself is just totally just kind of been overgrown, became decrepit. And now there's just uh, trap houses there, you know, trap houses, drug dens out in the desert. Oh. And so... I, uh, I actually tried to go out there once or twice. Uh, I was not welcome there. I actually got chased off the property. So he's buried there. Oh. And I can't even visit his own grave, my dad's own grave, because it's out there. Yeah, so that was... Wow. wow. That's been, yeah, that's always, that's always been kind of shitty. So one of my goals one day is to actually, um, in the next, hopefully the next few years, I'm going to buy that property, and uh, we're going to clear those folks out. Um, but anyways, I can't do that yet. That's so, an, wait, 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 wait. That's yeah. an amazing goal. That's an amazing goal. I mean, you may have to take some friends with you to get that thing cleared out. Oh, we'll probably have to take the sheriff's department with me too. Probably. Oh, yeah, maybe, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I think it was. I, I think it's going to be something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so, probably going to be something like that. So this was in your family, and you said, "Eh, yeah. I got to do something here." There's a lot of abuse of these kinds of things in the military. You see people that are trying to find the truth at the you know bottom of a bottle or whatever it is yeah. they're looking for, and so. You decided to do something about it, and how's that going? It's going. It's it started off really hard. I mean, at first, so it was you know we we uh, myself and a few other partners. I put together a board of directors and you know got and got some investors together. Um, two of whom are my classmates from the Naval Academy, oh, nice. um, which are some of my and, and two of my dearest friends and you know people I talk to every day, and so. Um, we you know put together a company we acquired um a small uh outpatient treatment center in here in orange county and then a few months later we were able to acquire three more locations in the area and now we're about to acquire a fifth right now wow. which is which is great 
And we actually started off, wasn't really focused on veterans. Um, I would have liked to, but then we, uh, the opportunity was presented to us that we're able to um, get a contract with the third party administrator for the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. And now we are almost exclusively veterans where, that we treat, which is fantastic. I mean, to me, it was, you know, I was pretty agnostic about at the time about who we would treat because it's like, look, just because you're in the military or not doesn't mean you don't struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, it's there. It affects everybody. So I, I was a very much, you know, kind of the person where it's like, hey, I, I don't I try not to live in that military mindset all the time. It's like when it's time to get out, it's like, hey, OK, you're, you're a civilian now. You know, you're yes, you're a veteran. This is your past. But it's like you're in the real you're in the real world now. Start living in it. But um, when that opportunity presented itself, we, we took it. And um, it not, I mean, not only has it been good for business, you know, just from a business standpoint, I mean, it is so rewarding, the folks that we're treating. And uh, I know that they're getting I, and they tell me we, we had a little uh, barbecue just yesterday for Memorial Day. Uh-huh. And we had we all the guys down the beach in um, near one of our locations in Laguna Beach. Huh? And it was you like, know it well, know, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I so, said, yeah, it was uh, at Heisler Park where we had it. Yesterday. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I got uh, one of my one of our patients there who's a you know, former SEAL. He spent most of it out in the water uh, <laughs> swimming and uh, a couple <laughs> of the guys, you know, were out in the surf and then uh, a bunch of the other guys. I mean, just hanging out. I brought our dog. You know, we have a we have a golden retriever puppy because we're in Orange County. Obviously. You, have to have a go- you have to have a golden retriever. Yeah, we got Bosco <laughs> there. So we brought Bosco there and he was a hit. And it was just like kind of good. It's just a little bit of fellowship, just talking to guys. Um, and one thing I do know, which is great, is that. Um, it's, and this isn't me, you know, there's one thing, this, this is my staff. This is, this is my clinical director. These are my case managers, my therapists, they're phenomenal. And uh, it's nice to to hear. They really rave about, uh, the staff, which is good. And I I think we're doing some things right. You know, we're, we're never perfect, obviously, but we're constantly trying to improve, see what can we do better? What can we do better? But, um, you know, it's, it's going extremely well. We've got a pretty good track record, I think. Um, and, and it's just uh, a very, very rewarding experience just to kind of um, uh, help those guys out a lot. Great- and, they, and, and they're quite grateful for it as well. Are you doing sobriety houses or sober living houses or what are you doing? So, are you- no, we don't do that. No, so we don't have that yet. We, we've looked into that. Um, but with, right now it's an inpatient residential treatment center. Oh, smart. So we will, no, it's if- smart. People don't like those sober houses necessarily uh, all yeah. over the place. I mean, they're in, in, having lived in Laguna Beach, I can tell you the neighbors are just, they're just like... What the yeah. hell's going on here? I mean, it's yeah, just it's, 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 it's the sober living houses are harder because there are fewer constraints on them. Yes. And they're usually it's a little it's a less structured environment where where we have our, our residential. So it's a much more structured environment. So um, and we you know, we, we don't have too many problems really out in Laguna. Uh, you know, we have some neighbors out in our other locations in Newport Beach. That, yeah, I think they're just unhappy that they're um, <laughs> that there's a treatment center next to them. Uh, I do remember being what was interesting. We had one neighbor who's particularly rude um, and wow. she was yelling and, and she she made a comment. I guess she had texted one of my staff saying there's a I thought it was, I, I thought it was kind of ironic because she said there's a scary black man outside my window and he's smoking. And I thought to my like, <laughs> OK, all right, that that's lovely. But also the same person has a Black Lives Matter sign in their front yard. <laughs> oh, for 
I mean, you know, that that's was just a, the worst, you in, know, I have to say in Laguna, it was it was absolutely hilarious when people would complain about the smoking. You'd look at the next door app and people would be, oh, they're smoking. And and I thought, well, look, OK, uh, these are people trying to kick an addiction. Could you just sure. cut them some slack, please? They're doing yeah. it one addiction at a time. Sure. Shut, oh, absolutely. Shut your pie it's, hole. It was just. Oh yeah, they complain about the smoking and like, oh well, well, maybe you just made it non-smoking. It's like exactly right. It's like, look, it, you know, they got to have one thing. If you're going to have any sort of treatment center, you got to give them something that's going to be copious amounts of nicotine and caffeine. Yeah. It just is. Oh. You know, and and you know whether that's very strong coffee. We've always got coffee brewing, uh, or energy drinks or something. And like, granted, is that the healthiest thing for you? No, but it's a hell of a lot better than heroin. Yeah. It's a whole hell of a lot better than drinking yourself to death. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, it's a little bit of a harm reduction thing, you know, and it's, right. uh, you know, and so I, I think that's, it's, it's interesting though, but uh, you know, um, you know, despite I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're dealing with folks who've got a lot of problems and if everything's going well, perfectly well, then they wouldn't be with us. So that's by our nature. We're dealing with folks who are really a kind of, many of them are at the end of the rope. They really are. I mean, they're, they're, uh, many of them have lost everything. You know, their families have left them. They're broke. Um, They've got medical problems now just due to their use and just like absolutely just destroyed their bodies. You know, they've got they've uh, you know, we we have some folks that are in their 50s and 60s, but they look like in that they're in their 80s or 90s. You know, Mm -hmm. they've got the body of that where, you know, they're they're just got a lot of city miles. (laughs) (laughs) City miles on them. You know, you you get it, though, too, in terms of just knowing what's on the minds of these veterans. And understanding that there are ghosts in there that they can't eradicate for whatever reason, and I can't yeah. even I can't even contemplate what must be in their their heads. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I would say so. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because we, we've got a real mix of folks. My our youngest one right now is I think thirty two. Our oldest is seventy eight. Seventy eight. Wow. Right? Yeah. And, um, but it's a mix of experience. You know, I've got one guy who spent 10 years in the SEAL teams. I got, and I got another guy who did like two years in the army back in the seventies, right. Where, and, and, you know, the military wasn't a major part of his life really, but part of his identity, but he's still within the vet, the VA system. And, but the thing is, though, is it's sometimes it's because of their military experience, but sometimes it's just because they're older. And they've got much more complex issues than, you know, we've had a couple of, you know, at a lot of treatment centers, you might have a, the 20, 21 year old kid who's uh, a heroin addict. And I mean, granted, that, that's its own set of problems as well. Mm. But and they've got all sorts of, you know, may, may quite often there's childhood trauma involved. There's all sorts of stuff. Mm. Um, but many of them are still very much an active addiction. Some of them, when, especially the young ones, when a lot of the really young ones and when they're in the real heavy drugs, they, I hate to say it, I can kind of tell, and our staff can tell, they're just almost not ready yet. They kind of showed up here to like, you know, they got forced here by their family or whatever, or they ran out of money and they still might've been on their parents and health insurance policy. And so they're almost there just to like take a knee, right? Yeah. Just like almost take a break, take a breather for a while. And you can, and quite often we can tell that they're not ready. And despite, you know, we, we can do everything right, but if they're not ready, then they're not ready. Whereas with a lot of our veterans who are much older, whether it's due to experience of their time in the military or just by the simple fact that they've been around a long time, they've got much more complex issues, right? And it's a lot long and takes a lot. It's it's a lot. It's much more complex because there's just so much history and experience there. You know, of a lot of you know bad stuff happening in their lives. A whole lifetime of 
of uh, of abuse of you know drug and alcohol abuse. So mm-hmm. it's I got to say that having the veterans just from the step my like my staff perspective, they love it because they're all, all of them. They're there for the right reasons. They're very grateful. They really put in the work, which is I mean you, you got to put in the work. I mean it's not just like you, it's not like you go to a clinic. And all of a sudden we, you know, we, we, we give you some medicine and you walk out and okay, I'm treated. I'm cured now. It doesn't work like that way. It's, it's, it's rehab's hard. I mean, it's really hard. And, um, the veterans that we have by and large really put forth the effort. I mean, they really do. And you can tell, and which is phenomenal. I mean, really like that. I mean, they listen to us. It's really great. Right. You know, I know it sounds silly, but you know, that's they, nice. It's big. It's huge. Yeah, it is big. It, it is. They really do listen to 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 us, and and they really do work it. And um, I think we have a higher. You know, we've had a higher success rate. I think thus far. It's hard to track sometimes right. because well, when ask- we, you know, when somebody leaves, you know, it's sometimes you lose touch with them. Just because you lose touch with them, you reach out to them, and if you don't hear back, that doesn't necessarily mean that they relapse. Right. That's not, I mean, they just moved on with their lives. The. Let me ask you something on politically correct yeah. or politically incorrect, whatever the proper verbology is, sure. she tried to say. But uh, I have to ask you about the homeless issue in Southern California. Yeah. Having worked with right. the homeless, I worked over at the Friendship Shelter a lot. You probably are aware of that. And um, but the thing is, is that I believe that the state of California has let people down by allowing them to wallow in their <clears throat> their illnesses and their sickness and giving them a free place to stay on the street when, in fact, all they want to do in many cases is to spend their government check on drugs and live on the streets for free. Um, I've been told that multiple times. I've seen it for myself. It is it's not helping. I agree completely. Um, so one thing I'll say that is really interesting is is uh, it was a police officer that I'm uh, you know, acquaintances with uh, here locally. It's always good to be friends with the police officers uh, in town. And uh, he said to me, and I'm like, oh, that's perfect. He summed it up perfectly. He just says, he said to me, uh, California doesn't have a homeless crisis. It doesn't have a homelessness crisis. It has a mental health and addiction crisis. That's it. That's what that is. The homelessness is a symptom of the mental health and the addiction. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's what it is right now. Because, I I mean, every, I, I would venture to say that. Every single person that's out there on the streets right now, I mean, maybe not every single one, but I got to say 99.9% of the folks that are chronically homeless, that are living there for a while, are either mentally ill or addicted, usually both, usually both. So um, that's that's what that really is. And so um, I know that, yeah, and, and I guess you say from the politically correct, pers- incorrect perspective is that it's looked at we're being compassionate right by not getting them off the streets or anything like that but i think where it's quite the opposite and I, I think for politically i think that's a big 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 difference you see between the left and the right is you'd see that a lot of folks on the left especially those who are um for lack of a better term come from a place of privilege which is usually in terms of money when i say that you know because i live in a you know where we are it's a very huh. uh wealthy area orange yes. county california obviously oh, it's very absolutely. wealthy it's not like the rest of uh california in that regard and um, it's they they want to do what feels good because it feels good, but it doesn't necessarily what does good. Right. Right. And, you know, tough love. Yeah. Good intentions. I think oh, I, I know that obviously I, I do believe that, that many folks who, who try to be compassionate in that way, their heart is in the right place. But uh, it's not what's it's not what's best for them. It just isn't. So, um, and, and you know, we try to do that, you know, here with, with our treatment centers, like, look, we're being compassionate, but at the same time, like we're giving you a little tough love, 
you know, a lot of people need to be told, Hey, you're fucked up and you need help yeah. for lack of a better term, you know, yeah. and I followed part, you know, part of the language, but yeah, that's just, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. That's what it really is. And so, and a lot of these guys, especially the veterans we deal with, they just need to be told that. And a lot of them know it. And, uh, a lot of they, you know, they, they know it, they openly acknowledge it, which is good. But I think that just because you're doing something that feels good or has good intentions, that is kind, right. Or at least it feels as kind. It's not really kind. And that's just, you can say the same thing about, you know, and that happens at a family level too, is you have, when you have parents uh, who enable um, their children or even their adult children's poor behavior, right? Yeah. Um, you have the same thing. You have the same with spouses, you know, who do that for their loved ones who just enable really bad behavior, but because they love them, they're doing from a place of kindness. Um, you know, it, it feels good, but they don't want to be considered harsh or mean or something like that. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have any degrees in that background or anything like that, but this is just speaking as a practitioner, I guess you'd say, or, you know, somebody who's in the space, my, uh, non-technical terms. Yeah. I think that's really what that comes down to. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I've seen it and I've talked to county officials who deal with the homeless all the time. And I, over at the, remember the justice center in uh, Santa Ana one time, I happened to be on jury duty, but this huge homeless encampment had been established on the premises. And I saw a person from the county who was wearing her, you know, fluorescent yellow outfit so that she would be spotted by people who needed to be connected to services. And I asked her, what are you doing here? She said, I'm trying to connect people with services. What are they doing here? They're collecting their paychecks and not paying rent so that they can spend all their money on drugs. And I thought, yeah, thank you very much for the truth. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's true. And also one thing that took me a while to figure out as well, and this is where it's kind of, it is kind of sad when you see that because you look at these folks and, and many of these folks who are, who are addicted, I mean, they're, they're, they're broken, obviously, in a lot of ways. Sure. But what it comes down to is that when you're, you're dealing with this, it was when you talk to them, uh, especially when they're very much in the throes of active addiction, especially when they first show up or if they relapsed or something like that, is you're not talking to them. Like, they're not there. You know, you know like they, that person, is not there. You're talking to the addiction. Mm. Right. Like that's it's it's the addiction you're dealing with. Like they've been quite literally possessed, for lack of a better term. Right. Right. By that addiction. Yeah. So these these folks and look, it can happen to anybody. I mean, like, you know, if, if you or me, you or I took enough heroin for a long enough time. Guess what? You'll become addicted too, and you won't be that person anymore. You know, obviously, mm. fortunately, you know, we're we're never going to be in that position. But those who do just by making bad decisions and obviously, you know, the progressing down that line, um, they are. And so that's one of the things that I kind of took a while to realize, you know, they will lie, they will cheat, they will steal. And that's not when that happens. It's not so much I'm judging them like, oh, you're a bad person. You have flawed character. You're awful. No, I mean, you don't. You're just dealing with an addict. And that's what that is. So that you know, for lack of a better term, you know, it's, it's, it's one of my partners, uh, is, uh, deeply, deeply religious, uh, you know, um, fundamental Christian conservative and, mm-hmm. but he's also extremely compassionate as well. That kind of took me a while. We talk about this. We have very deep conversations about it and it's like, these are demons. You yeah. Know? No, I believe like, that. And when we, when we talk about, when we say the word like demons, right. But we still, word around, you know, some people might have kind of conflate the term 
with, you know, something from some Renaissance painting of some evil, scary looking monster with leathery wings or something. Right. But it's not that. But it's just as real. It's actually more real than anything out there. Mm -hmm. It's it's an actual it's a, a you know, it, they are they are possessed by that addiction. And a lot of times that those those, you know, those very much negative forces, whatever you want to call it, whether you know, you don't even have to be spiritual about it. But whether it's, you know, addiction, greed, lust, all these terrible things that kind of destroy people. And like a lot of times that like the representation we have for that is these scary monsters. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, without getting too deep about it, but that's what that is. You're dealing with demons. Where does, and, he, where does your friend go to church? Just curious. Uh, he, he, he's not here. Uh, he's uh, he, he lives in Florida. Oh, gotcha. OK. I was just wondering so, yeah. if but, I knew but, the church. Um, I'm sure he, I do. If he were in Orange County, I would. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. No, he, uh, but he's pretty familiar with like Rick Warren and all those folks, mm -hmm. folks Saddleback yeah. and all the rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, but uh, he he lives in Florida. Um, actually, I've got to call with him in a few minutes, and we talked about that quite a bit. Is uh, yeah, that's that's one of the things, that, and that's why I know very much he feels it. Like you know, he's you know, we're we're doing, we're trying to do the Lord's work, for lack of a better term, whether or not you're religious, you know, whether somebody's identifies as being Christian or not. You know, it's, it's you know, we, we say we're doing the Lord's work, you know, whether you mean that, however you might interpret that. Sure. Well, let me ask you that then. Yeah. Are you what? fearful for the future of this country, seeing it as you do? Good question. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know. I uh, It's not going away anytime soon. Obviously, you know, addictions. Well, one of the things I look at is like addictions always been here. Yes. Right. And yes. it's nothing new. Agreed. Been around for thousands of years. Human nature. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, there was a time not that long ago within throughout much of the West where, you know, probably about two thirds of the population was drunk every day. <laughs> you know, I mean, just the way, especially among the the poorest in in uh, in Europe and uh, in, in North America, going back, you know, if you go back to 100, 200 years, I mean, just everyone was drunk all the time. Huh. Um I would say, though, that when it comes to, I, I think, with the opioids, that's a whole other ball game. It really is. I mean, it's, you know, we talk about fentanyl. We talk about all, you know, um, the opioids and fentanyl that's being that's coming over here from China, mm -hmm. um, that it's incredibly cheap. It's so incredibly addictive. You know, it's different from, you know, I don't put, you know, it sounds weird, but like not all drugs are the same. They really aren't. Alcohol is very different from marijuana, which is very different from heroin, which is different from fentanyl. Which, I mean, fentanyl is an opioid, but it's just, it's, you know, it's fentanyl is heroin on steroids or heroin <laughs> on crack, I guess. You know what I mean? If you're yeah. another, you know, put another way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am a little fearful, but I, I, I think that probably maybe I'm just, I sound uh, overly optimistic because I always am that way. I'm very much an optimist. I'm very white pilled, I guess you could say, <laughs> is that things are going to get, Things are probably going to get worse before they're going to get better, but I think they will get better eventually. And I think that's from a societal standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, I, I think the pendulum will swing the other way. And you see that a little bit now. I mean, think about, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, actually, no, 50 years ago, right, which wasn't that long. You know, smoking cigarettes was pretty common, right? Yeah. You know, it was common. It was, I mean, like doctors smoked, sure. you know, I mean. Right. Yes. So and now, I mean, smoking is considered smoking cigarettes is considered just lowbrow for by a lot of people, mm -hmm. not everybody. But yeah. I mean, a lot of people out there, it's considered very lowbrow, low class. It's something that, you know, is typically frowned upon. Now, that doesn't mean smoking is still a thing. But I, I mean, I think culturally, you know, we as, as a society, we we really abhor cigarette smoking. 
So, you know, by and large. So, um, and I think it's interesting. I, I, I'm seeing a turn for that in, with alcohol. It, it, it's interesting. I know a lot of folks who are younger who drink a lot less. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all, but I, I, I know a lot of folks who choose to be sober or who drink yeah. very little, and which I think is a really good thing. And I mean, then you can also say, you know, there used to be a time where we're so worried about teen pregnancies, right? And sexually transmitted diseases among teenagers and whatnot. And so, and now it seems that, um, you know, that a lot of the younger folks, the uh, Gen Z's and all the millennials are having less unprotected sex, right? And they're mm-hmm. having, you know, I mean, they're, then they were all, you know, 20 years ago or so. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not a problem, but yeah. It's I, like I'm turning an aircraft carrier around. You know, it takes yeah, a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. No, but I, I, I am hopeful. I'm not a, I'm not a gloom and doom kind of guy at all. Um, because one, even if it were true, it's just not helpful. What, what's it, you know, what good are you doing? If you're, even if it was, if it was, you know, all doom and gloom for this country or for sure. the world, um, acting like it is, isn't, doesn't help anybody. So, um, but I, even so, I don't think that's the case. Now, I think, I think we'll be okay as a society. I think we'll, I mean, yeah, there's serious problems we got to address. The opioid crisis, that's a really big one. I mean, just the amount of fentanyl that's coming in to the country is, I mean, it's insane. There was an article I read in, uh, gosh, I think it was Bloomberg a few years ago about how cheap fentanyl is and how deadly it is. So for just a like, brief example, like two milligrams of fentanyl, right, can be lethal. So, which is just such a tiny, tiny amount. And that amount is being cut and being put into like cocaine uh, and street Xanax and whatnot. And because they're just using it just to like add an effect to it because it's super cheap. But anyways, they, they, they said they made a reference to this. And, you know, I might be butchering some of this. I might be, I'll be getting exactly right. But just to give you a perspective, at least, is if you were to buy, you know, let's say if you're going to buy uh, $1,000 worth of like bulk heroin, right? Just heroin coming up from, you know, from Latin America. You could chop all that up, sell it, and you'd have a street value of about $25,000, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from a, if you, you know, from a cold business perspective, not a bad investment, right? Right. Sounds bad, right? If you're, you're a drug dealer, right? So <laughs> you could buy a thousand bucks, turn it into $25,000. Not bad. If you were to buy, <clears throat> you know, $1,000 of bulk heroin, that's, you know, I think that's about, you probably fill like a duffel bag with that, like a large backpack. Now, if you bulk and then turn it on sell for 25K. If you're now, if you're to buy a thousand dollars of bulk fentanyl, it's about a little bit bigger than a golf ball, and you can chop all that up and you make something like seven point four million dollars, right? Yeah. Now, you, but I mean, obvious thing is though, it's like when folks are distributing them, putting it into Xanax or cocaine, or they're selling it separately or whatnot. Like, obviously, these aren't the folks in the lab at Pfizer, right? Who are just you know making sure it sits dosed correctly. Right. And that's why you see all these folks who are dying, you know, who are dying like crazy. And here's one of those crazy. One of my buddies from Washington, D.C., uh, he used to work. At, he's a think tank guy. He's a data guy. Uh-huh. He um, and he did a lot of stuff on the opioid crisis, drug, drug, drug epidemic. Uh, he's from Ohio, rural Ohio. So obviously oh. where they've been really hard hit. Yeah. And now he works for uh, the Reason Institute. So um, but anyways, he he was telling me that is um, in addition to, you know, doing all the numbers and whatnot and like looking at statistics for overdoses and deaths and arrests and all the rest of it, you would actually interview drug users. Yep. And he also interviewed drug dealers. Oh, interesting. Right? Which I thought was very interesting. Right. Yeah. And, this is, and he was interviewing folks from like Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, you know, the real place where it's real bad. And they would tell him that when 
folks started dying in a certain area, right? Like in a certain area of town, mm-hmm. you know, dealer gets a shipment, starts selling it, and then folks start dropping like flies. That caused more people to come to him, right? What? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And I'm like, what? It's like, yeah, because the attitude among those addicts was, hey, this guy's got the good stuff, but all those other guys who are dropping like flies don't know what they're doing. I do. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That one blew me away. So, yeah. Wow. It was, uh, oh, yeah, it was interesting. So, um, yeah. So, despite all that stuff, I, uh, yeah, I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think we'll be okay. I think the pendulum's going to swing eventually. But I think enough, enough people are going to just take note and then realize this is just absolutely destroying the country and destroying lives. I mean, it, it's like, what is it? I think that we've, it's like something like 70, 80,000, 70 or 80,000 Americans a year are dying of opioid overdoses, mm-hmm. roughly. Mm-hmm. I think it came down to like, I think it was the same, I think in 10, I think in 2018, 2019 or so. I'm not sure. Again, just kind of some numbers here. I have to fact check myself, but the rough numbers are close enough is, uh, we lost as many people to overdoses to, you know, heroin and fentanyl overdoses. We lost as many people in 10 months of 2018 as we did in 10 years of the Vietnam war. Right. So that's amazing. It's yeah, it is. It's it's insane. We, it is. And like, look, I mean, everybody knows somebody. I mean, I'm assuming Victoria, or I'm assuming you know somebody who's probably, you know, somebody, somebody who's died of an overdose. Um, no, I don't. But oh. I, I, I'm shocked by that. It's like when you're with a group of women who um, and everyone in, uh, is asked, oh, who's been raped here? And a lot a lot of hands go up. And uh, so, um, you know, yeah. so it's it's it won't be too long, I'm sure, before I. Sure. Well, or I'd be surprised. There's probably somebody you might know somebody who knows somebody. I'm sure. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Might, but a lot of times people just don't like to talk about that sometimes. Right. You know? Well, so. it's been amazing spending this time with you, Tom. And um, look at you—you're just walking into the light and helping people. Good on you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, we love what we do, and it's not—it's not me. It's—it's uh, it's my team. They're great. They're amazing. They make it happen. So yeah. I'm just happy to like kind of bring folks together. Yeah. And get people in the right place and kind of try to manage the big picture. But um, it's my staff that are doing the phenomenal work. It really is. Well. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Cheers. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review plus of course subscribe to the podcast it makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs and it makes us easier to find please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff yeah we're still there using the names victoria taft or the adult in the room podcast on MeWe, parlor minds facebook twitter and instagram thanks to one a cast for imaging editing and production The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, Mischief Managed.